Come on, give Hunter a break. He's a recovering crack addict. The fact that he did multi-million dollar deals with the Chinese, somehow managed to get a $3 million check sent to him from the wife of the mayor of Moscow and, and doled out millions to his nieces and nephews, it doesn't make him a bad guy. That was CNN's take after his closed-door deposition in front of Congress yesterday. Here are Dana Nash, Lee Caldwell, and Evan Perez. Listen. But he actually, in a rare uh, interview with Axios on Monday, said the following, which really struck us. He said, I've always been in awe of people who have stayed clean and sober through tragedies and obstacles few people ever face. I have something much bigger than even myself at stake. We are in the middle of a fight for the future of democracy. This is kind of more of a human element of what we're talking about here. It's very personal. He uh, is very open about the fact that he is an addict. He was uh, very much off the wagon when a lot of this happened. And part of what he is trying to do, he's saying here, is stay clean for for himself, for his family, for his father, and he believes for politics, which is democracy. Yeah, and he's also insinuating there that he knows that this is also inherently political yes. as well. Uh, Donald Trump, every single campaign stump speech he gives, the words come out of his mouth, Joe Biden, the most corrupt president in history. And so this is part of the strategy of, um, of trying to convince voters that that is true. You know, look, I think with, with, with Hunter Biden and one of the, one of the key parts of this has been, you know, Jill Biden and her role in trying to keep Hunter close. And, you know, the, you see all these stories about why is Hunter showing up at these events at the White House? Why isn't the president pushing him away? I think part of the thing has been about this very personal, familial, uh, you know, tragedy that they've been living, which is to try to keep him sober and to keep him uh, safe. Um, and that's one reason why you see him there. They keep him close for that reason. And you can see what he's saying in, in return, which is they're going after me because they're trying to make me use so that they could hurt my father. And that is a, a crazy thing to have to hear in uh, 2024 politics. Yeah. And in 2024 society, when we are w- right. much more aware of addiction. Yeah. Shame on everybody. The guy's a, a, a crack addict and just leave him alone. It's all it's, it's inherently political. And the Republicans are mean to ask him how he was able to make all that money without, you know, being qualified to do anything. CNN has no shame. Anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk to our media expert, Professor of Communications Jeff McCall from DePaul University. And he's also a media critic for The Hill about the media's coverage of that and the primaries and other stuff. And in our second half hour, Rich Kupka owns uh, two bars on the south side. He's going to be here to talk about how the city is doing in crime prevention. Apparently, it's uh, not too well. Stick around. On the open of the show, I played some comments from a panel on CNN yesterday reacting to uh, Hunter Biden's appearance on Capitol Hill. They were all feeling sorry for him because the Republicans might cause him to relapse and start on the crack again if they ask him too many tough questions. Uh, Jeffrey McCall is a professor of communications at DePaul University and a media critic for The Hill, and he joins us now. Good to have you back on, Jeff. Thank you, John. So uh, have you heard the clip that I ran at the top of the show? Yes, it's remarkable uh, in in so many ways uh, to think that we should not be doing any investigative journalism or hold uh, Hunter Biden accountable for fear that he might go into relapse. 
And, and, you know, I must say we should all be sympathetic with people who are fighting addictions, but that doesn't mean that they get a pass from scrutiny, particularly when there's a subject of investigations that are actually news. Yeah, and if you commit a murder, you, you, you don't get to say, well, I was drunk, and they say, well, don't do it again. Try not to drink anymore. Well, and, you know, this is just a, con- a continuing pattern of the establishment media that want to make any scrutiny of Hunter Biden out to be some sort of, you know, political witch hunt. And, and, I, and I must say that the kind of stuff Hunter's been doing uh, surfaces as news. It's legitimate for coverage uh, as news for the media. But it's also important for the Republican congressman to be looking into what he's doing. If, if Hunter Biden were just some guy who is engaging in seedy deals and international business dealings that are uh, questionable, to say the least, it would be news even on that level when you've got American citizens engaging with foreign antagonistic governments for their own selfish purposes. But when that person is, a, is the son of a sitting president and former vice president, and there are reasons to think that Joe Biden has been connected somehow, at least on the periphery of these activities, it makes it all the more newsworthy. And I think when you've got, you know, sympathetic journalists trying to dismiss this whole line of investigation uh, as harmful to somebody who might fall back into addiction, uh, they are totally just running cover for this operation. And, and it's really kind of shameful. And it adds to kind of the polarization uh, of the nation because it seems to suggest that anybody who wants to actually find out what has happened in the Biden uh, lobbying world or influence peddling world, that somehow they're evil or they're hostile uh, or they're trying to uh, harm individual human beings. And I'm thinking there are much greater issues involved here. And, and uh, frankly, uh, the mainstream media has done a very poor job of looking into Hunter Biden at all. Uh, and, and when they do cover it, uh, it's always in the context of Republicans are trying to take political advantage out of some personal problem that Hunter Biden has. Yeah, and and I mean, Hunter Biden is a sympathetic person on one level, mm-hmm. but he's not a sympathetic source uh, for purposes of news coverage. And I think the journalism needs to rise above that. It should. Um, now, and it's not just the electronic media. Here's the headline from the Washington Post uh, that made it onto the bottom half of the front page. Hunter Biden says he never involved father in business. That's the headline. So right away, it's it's giving his side of the story. Uh, and then uh, it says House Re- and it has a quote from Biden in the headline, I guess. He accuses uh, House Republicans of, quote, having built your entire entire partisan house of cards on lies. That's the Washington Post. But at least he yeah. made it onto the front page there. Well, I must say that they at least covered that. But but the, the the story leads with the whole notion that we should believe Hunter Biden. <laughs> I mean, that, that we need to take at face value his denial that his dad had any involvement with any of his business dealings. Now, one of the questions is, what do we consider to be involvement? <clears throat> well, there are pictures of Joe Biden with Hunter's business associates. Uh, I, I think at the very least, you could consider that involvement. Now, if the involvement got further into the actual dealings or whatever, uh, or if there was money exchanged or whatever. But, I mean, there are a lot of questions that we just haven't answered. And I think when, at face value, the Washington Post assumes 
that whenever Hunter, whatever Hunter Biden says is true, uh, they're making a big mistake. Because, you know, you know, I teach journalism students, and one thing I always say is, you can't take anything at face value. And if somebody says, you know, uh, make, makes a declarative statement, it's worth your asking, how do you know that? How can you prove that's true? And the Washington Post is taking, with a straight face, his denial that Joe Biden had anything to do with Hunter Biden's business activities. And I'm thinking, we know Hunter Biden is self-interested. We know there are many reasons why he might fudge the truth a little bit to protect his own backside and his dad's. And I'm just thinking uh, we should at least have a raised eyebrow, at least from the Washington Post. And I don't think they have the, the courage to actually do that. And the, uh, the, the, the writers of the Washington Post story, um, they, um, this is what they wrote. House Republicans have not been able, and this is everywhere in the media coverage just about, this is the, this is the angle that they take. House Republicans have not been able to uncover firm evidence that Joe Biden benefited from or played a role in the business pursuits of his family members. So they make sure they get that in. And they had no Republican quotes on the front page with the story. Not one. Well, they're, they're running interference. And again, as I've said on your show before, I, I think the Republicans probably have not done a sufficient job of connecting the dots. Uh, and I think they probably should have waited a little bit until they had more dot connection before they were trying to go public with all their investigation. But on the other hand, to say that there is no evidence, I think is misleading as well. Uh, because like I said, you know, there have been pictures and that sort of thing, and nobody's ever explained who the 10% is for the big guy. And so, I mean, th- there, there is evidence, whether it's sufficient, you know, for an impeachment or sufficient for a criminal indictment, or sufficient to actually draw final conclusions, you know, could still be questioned. But it's not like there's no evidence and these guys are choir boys who are victims of just, you know, Republican extremists. Yeah, and when you when you use the word uh, firm evidence, there's not been able to uncover firm evidence. It's kind of a subjective term for a reporter to be using, isn't it? Well, yeah, and in fact, I think if, if we had really assertive, and enterprising journalists, they would be out there helping look into this story on their own. And they should be looking for the firm evidence. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and instead of just relying on, you know, guys in Congress to step forward and, you know, try to look for stuff. I mean, I know the various Republican committees have looked into this, but you know that uh, enterprising journalists for years have always taken it as a challenge for themselves to do their own research, their own investigative work, they might be able to get sources that Republican congressmen can't, you know, get under testimony. And I would be interested to know if they if they even have the interest in doing that. And I sense they probably don't. No. And uh, then you have the New York Times, Jeff. Um, it didn't make it onto the front page. This story did not make it until in the New York Times until page A15. And the uh, the headline was Hunter Biden condemns inquiry fueled by lies, slams GOP in closed-door deposition. That is the headline on page A15. Uh, President's son being brought in to defend his dad from charges of corruption kind of seems like a big story, an historic story, that if it's all BS, it still is a front-page story. Yeah, it, it needs more attention than that. But I think one of the reasons they're not giving it more attention 
is that they know under scrutiny that this story uh, that they're trying to push on us, that there's no there there and that Hunter is just a heck of a nice guy, I think they know that really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But that headline that you read is clearly an attempt to bias the readers even before they read the story. And you know as well as I do, a lot of people who look at newspaper headlines either online or in a hard copy newspaper, they're just reading the headline and maybe the first paragraph. And so anybody with any sense would look at those stories and think, well, you know, Hunter Biden must be, you know, clean as a houndstooth, must be no problem here, and that the Republicans are the evil guys, and and not even find any context by trying to read further into the story. Yeah, that's, that headline sums it up for me. It moves on to page A16, you know, A15. Mm-hmm. Um, but And you mentioned, uh, according to uh, News uh, Busters, which is where I found some of this stuff, the first 10 paragraphs of the New York Times story were devoted to Hunter's responses to the Republicans' charges. So you just mentioned that they, a lot of people wouldn't get past the headline. You'd have to go 10 paragraphs in on the New York Times story before uh, uh, there was a Republican response to what happened yesterday. Yeah, and uh, it, it, it has been fascinating to watch this. And again, all of this, I'm sure, is influenced by the fact that it's an election year uh, and that they're still trying to run cover. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you contrast this, of course, uh, to the various legal problems that Donald Trump has. And by the way, I, I consider Trump's legal issues legitimate news. But if you contrast that to the way the Trump legal things have been covered, uh, there's no comparison at all. Uh, and, you know, it, it just is, it's a matter of imbalance. It's a sociopolitical intentional imbalance. Uh, and that's why media credibility has tanked in the last number of years. And it's going to be very hard to get news consumers back to pay attention to the mainstream media because they know that they're being worked. And I think that's a very sad reflection on, you know, the major news organizations in the nation right now, which would have to include the New York Times and the Washington Post. I mean, they still help set the big agendas for the nation's newsreaders. And sadly, um, you know, a lot of people now are, you know, what we call news avoiders, you know, the people are just tired of following the news at all because they know they're not going to get a straight shake on it. And this is this is further evidence of that right now. Uh, we're talking to Jeff McCall. He's the uh, uh, professor of communications at DePaul University. Uh, he also does media criticism for The Hill. So, um, Jeff, what was your impression of the coverage of the South Carolina and Michigan primaries? I kind of got the impression that there was some cheerleading going on there for Nikki Haley. Oh, there, there's a ton of cheerleading going on for Nikki Haley. And what I find amusing about that, number one, is she's really just not a threat to ever really win this nomination uh, for the Republican Party. Uh, I mean, I know she's still doing an active campaign and making appearances. So I, I'm not suggesting that the media should ignore her because she's a candidate still in the field. But if for some reason Donald Trump were to drop out or suspend his campaign or, you know, not be the nominee, you know that Nikki Haley would not be the Republican nominee, that the field would be wide open again. And Tim Scott and Mike Pence and everybody else, DeSantis, who's dropped out, would jump back in there in a heartbeat. And so when the news media characterizes Haley as a legitimate possibility to be the Republican nominee, that's kind of wishful thinking. And, and but here's one other angle, too. If by some chance Trump got out or Haley caught fire and won Super Tuesday and that sort of thing, and Haley became the nominee for the Republican Party, 
she would immediately be demonized by all these media organizations now who are happy to pat her on the head and promote her as the voice of reason and that sort of thing. So if she ever did get traction and was really the possible nominee, you can bet CNN and the New York Times and all those people would turn on her in a heartbeat. And you can bet she'd notice a big difference. On another subject, uh, Jeff, there's been a lot of talk in the media lately about Generation Z, uh, which would be like, I guess, uh, people between 10 and 25, 30 years old. Um, one, it's one, but one that seems to be popping up a lot is the divide between young men and young women. Uh, men are conservative and women are liberal. I'm talking about within Generation Z. So you're a college professor. You're living among these people every day. Have you noticed this? Yeah, I have. Uh, you know, I haven't done anything systematic to try to assess it, but just uh, from casual observation, I think there is a sense uh, amongst Generation Z here uh, that the young men are more interested in issues and, you know, and in policies and beliefs that would lean more right and the women more left. Uh, you know, there could be some cultural issues involved there. The abortion issue might be one of those things. But I think the main thing, uh, in my opinion, is that through secondary education and through higher education now, you know, there's a lot of drumbeat that, you know, women need to be, uh, you know, special, that women's rights are important, men are unimportant. And I think Generation Z men are finding this message that men are unimportant or irrelevant uh, in the greater society are responding to that and thinking, hey, you know, we maybe want a better shake. And all of these kind of ideological and cultural drifts are not really helpful in trying to build uh, common understanding or cooperation amongst the genders. And I, I saw something just today somewhere. I forget where I saw it. Um, someone was what brought this subject up and um, made the point that it could just be that you mentioned the high school age guys. Uh, they're being this stuff is being jammed down their throats. The, the transgender insanity that's out there, and it's it's just nothing more than just guys pushing back and saying this is just stupid. I, well, I, yeah, I, I don't buy this. Yeah, I think you're right that that the, the young men are figuring out that uh, they're going to be beaten up culturally, uh, and there you know there's a lot of feminism out there that berates patriarchy and that sort of thing. And the reality is in this day and age, you know, women have plenty of opportunities. I'm not saying that it, it's necessarily an even playing field on all different aspects of culture in these days and age. But on, I must say the, the women's movement has made a lot of progress. But I think getting women to the point of equal treatment in society versus degrading men and belittling the role of men in society are two different things. And I think we've kind of gone too, too far past trying to find ways to help make equality for women as opposed to women are better than men and men are unimportant. And uh, I think young men don't like that message, and I think they're responding. Yep, they are, and uh, I think it's only going to create more of a divide. Uh, Jeff, I'm I'm out of time. As usual, great to have you on. I'm sure we'll talk soon. I look forward to it. Thank you. Okay, that's uh, Jeffrey McCall. He's a professor of communications at DePaul University. I will be right back. Well, here's the headline um, on the Post-Gazette editorial page. I believe it was this morning. Uh, One night, 14 cops, colon, there aren't enough Pittsburgh police officers. Well, Rich Kupka owns two bars on the south side. He's been speaking about the 
lack of police presence now for a long time. He joins us now. Rich, thanks for coming on again. Thanks, John. So, um, first of all, let's get a plug-in. What are your two bars? I assume they're both still up and running. Yeah, it's Chupka's over in Southside, Chupka's too. Okay. Uh, and um, you were on the show back in July, I think, and then again in November. Uh, you had some horror stories about what was happening on the South Side. Have things improved at all since the last time we spoke? Uh, not not really. Uh, I mean, there's less crimes because of the violence and chaos. But uh, now we have 26% vacancies, uh, you know, uh, a, a stigma uh, for the for the neighborhood as to, you know, people don't come and dine here. So people are still moving out. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, businesses. And, and families. And, yeah. And it's, it's noticeable, like, uh, it's, it's to anybody who's been there for a while. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I just uh, I told my friend I was going on the radio. I was going to mention that they moved out because of the violence and all that. And I said I wasn't going to use her name. But she said, no, go use my name. And it was a friend of mine, Maggie, and her family left Pittsburgh to move to Cranberry. And they loved Southside. They used to walk their dog up and down East Carson Street for years. And then, you know, all the violence started, and they just moved out. Wow. Hey, Rich, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your name right. It's Chupka, not Kupka, right? Chupka? Right, Chupka. Chupka, yeah. sorry about that. Um, so um, what about only 14 cops being on duty at night? What's that all about? Well, it's it has to do with the new scheduling that the city's doing, uh, the 310s instead of the the way it used to be. Uh, they, they, you know, they've been talking about that for months now. And... Uh, it's a complete fraud. They're, they're saying that there's less crime in the 2 to 7 a.m. period. And uh, actually, if you look at their at their own uh, heat maps of crime, 19% of all violent crimes happen between 2 a.m. and 7 a.m. And that's when we're going to have the least amount of police on the streets. And his, and what, and go ahead. And and they're using uh, calls to the uh, calls as a uh, indicator for why they're doing you know less um, police at that at the Myers. What do you mean that, that they're they're basing the need on the number of calls they've been getting? Yeah, cause, well, I mean, the calls go down from two to seven, but violent crimes are still there. Violent crimes are the you know. If you have if you have a shooting, that's going to take at least ten ca- uh, cars to secure the area, you know, and protect the uh, people and protect the victim. Well, if you, sh- if you if you shoot somebody and kill them, they're probably not going to make a call for a while. <laughs> well, somebody's going to call when they yeah. when they hear the shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but so, how much input were you and the other people who live over there allowed to to give on this? And how much attention did they pay to, to your response to their plan? Zero. Zero. In both cases, though, did you get to put? Did they ask you for your input? No. I mean, we go to meetings. We tell them what's what's going on, and it's like talking to the wall. Who's the wall? Who are you talking to? Uh, uh, the police. You know, the, when we have meetings in Southside, you know, we say, "Hey, this is what's going on." You know, and then they. I'm sure they tell the uh, the, the command staff. But that's like talking to the wall. So, because they're going to go ahead. Sorry. 
They're going to listen to whatever the mayor says anyhow. We're going well, to what what, what I'm trying say. to get at here is when you say you have meetings, who comes out to the south side for the meetings? Oh, it's, who, it's the people of the south side. You yeah, know, but who are you, uh, who are you telling your who are you making your complaints to? Well, the the uh, the the police send representatives then, mm-hmm. and it, I mean this is this has been going on for years now. Yeah, but but are these remember, these are not these are not uh, are these low level representatives who are coming out? Uh, well, we had a commander we had the commander from Zone Three about six months ago, mm-hmm. and and yeah. you and you told him what. Well, I say, you know, we, we need more police down here. You know, we've been saying the same thing for uh, four, three years, three and a half years. And uh, and now we're not only are, aren't we getting more, we're getting less. You know, we had 14 officers in seven cars uh, um, from Sunday night into Monday morning. That's that's all we had to, to protect 300,000 taxpayers. And and that's now, in that's in citywide. There were only fourteen cops. That's, you're not talking just about the South Side here. No, that's citywide. Fourteen now, cops you, on if, duty. Yeah. So we, let me give you a little story. So we tried to have a South Side sidewalk sale uh, probably about five years ago. Okay. So mm-hmm. we had to go down to special events and you know get a uh, to get a permit for the the event. Yeah. And next thing you know. They're, uh, Bruce Cross, the former uh, councilman down there, that, you know, he intervenes and they, and they start talking about the need for uh, so many police per uh, how many people at the event, you know, yeah. because they said that they have to protect the citizens and the police, right? Mm-hmm. But now, so if you, if you go by their charts, it's 20,000 people, you would need 16 officers. If you have a uh, event in Pittsburgh, so uh, for as for twenty thousand people now, Sunday night we have three hundred thousand people, and we only had fourteen cops. Yeah, and then that's that's the that's the population, the total number of people, three hundred, and that's and, and fourteen cops. So yeah, um, and and um, would they be? Would those cops be concentrated in high crime areas, or are they just driving around and hoping that they're in the right place at the right time? I I, I don't know what they're, how, how they're uh, you know dispersing them. I, don't, I have no idea about that. Yeah, but um, you know it, it, it's ridiculous. You know how how can you have fourteen cops uh, securing a city of three three hundred thousand people? Well, how many were five years ago? How many would there have been? Well, I mean, it, it should be at all times forty-four to fifty-four cops per shift per zone. And what and what are you basing that number on? How they did it in the past, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, for forty-four to uh, fifty-four per uh, shift, not by zone. And now it's the it's is it down to fourteen every night, or is this just what what happened last night from this editorial? One night, fourteen cops. Yeah, well, uh, it happened one time on Sunday into Monday morning and and was the were they called out on it anybody at the city asked about it well i mean everybody knows you know i mean it's in the it's in the paper you know and it's just like you know pittsburgh is like a uh you know the land of sheep whatever they tell you they believe (laughs) well now i see another thing here that you sent me um 
and it's about operational uh, procedures. Uh, and he and 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 you um, uh, you mentioned that that uh, there there's going to be a difference in the way they receive and react to calls. Can you explain what's going on with that? Yeah, I, I don't understand that at all. You know, you, it, something has to be in progress for, for them to come. Yeah, but that's a so, change, though, right, Rich? I mean, this oh, is, yeah. they've, they've said that from now on, we're only going to take calls uh, about events in progress. Right, right. So, you know, if you shoot somebody and they're laying on a, on a grind, it, and it's, is it shooting over, is that still in progress or not? You know, who, who knows what, what the definitions of how they're going to secure and patrol uh, citizens of Pittsburgh, and and that's a that's a that's a major change, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. And then the other thing is they're, they're putting a box in eight, there's six zones in Pittsburgh. They're going to put a box in there. If you need police, run to the zone and press the button. You know, so if you're if you're getting raped or beat yeah, up, just get over to the button. At, yeah, give me give me five five minutes to get over to the uh, to the uh, police station. Yeah, I'm bleeding to death here. I've just been shot. Let me see if I can push this button. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, what's what are what are people your neighbors and 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 your your customers and your and your uh, places of business? What are they saying about this? Oh, I mean, a hundred percent of people are totally against it. Hundred percent. Doesn't matter though. Nope. Well, I mean, what they're doing is a facade of lack of police in Pittsburgh. We have. You know, we have we're down at like seven hundred and thirty and in July we're gonna lose another seventy to a hundred because they're gonna get the longevity check in July. So that's gonna reduce the number of police by seventy to a hundred. So, you know, this is gonna get worse before it gets better. And uh any explanation about why the, the, the number of police are being reduced? Is it because they can't find them or they're just uh, to, you know, are, are people retiring or quitting? At a higher rate, and they just can't find people to replace them. Uh, well, they, you know, they should have been putting classes on for the last five years, and they haven't. And what we're doing, what we're having is, resi- uh, you know, people resigning. I mean, retiring. But the worst part is, uh, the young guys are resigning to take uh, jobs in other communities that pay more money and have less problems, and have, you know, when they leave, they have an administration. That backs them up when they do their job. I, I was at a basketball game the other night. I seen a friend of mine who retired from Pittsburgh Police uh, two years ago. He's now working out at uh, uh, Moon, and he says best thing I ever did was retire. You know, you have less problems, you get paid double, and the administration there backs you up. So he it's retired. Like he retired from the city, uh, gets his pension, and then got hired by Moon. So he's still a cop. Exactly. Still a cop. Yeah. Who yeah. who wouldn't do that? Exactly. Well, you sent me a couple things here on the text. We're talking to Rich Chupka. Uh, he's he owns Chupka too on the south side. Um, this is a, a story about a uh, a little girl, three year old uh, girl. Let me find it here. Pittsburgh police received a nine one one call at about four a.m. For a little girl, approximately three years of age, spotted walking alone outside in Duquesne Heights, citywide units immediately searched the area, and a sergeant discovered the child at 4.50 a.m. in the 100 block of Oneida Street. 
Uh, the toddler was wearing a, uh, a T-shirt, and it is unknown how long she was exposed to the elements. It goes on to say that she had hypothermia. She went to the hospital. She's in serious but stable condition. Uh, would that be considered an in-progress, I guess? We're looking for a three-year-old girl who's out on the street at 4 o'clock in the morning? Uh, I, I guess it would be. Uh, and then the other thing is they, they said a citywide, if you notice, they said citywide. So mm-hmm. that means all seven cars that are patrolling Pittsburgh are at that scene, and everything else is uh, not being protected. So if I were a member of the crime-committing uh, community, I might do something in one area to dr- to draw the seven police cars and then go do my really big project in another neighborhood. Exactly. Yep. And and you point out that uh, the fourteen cars, fourteen officers. It's not fourteen cars, right? It's it's seven cars with two two yep. cops in each car. Exactly. For the entire city. Yes. Now, how does that compare with? A suburban force, you know, Mount Lebanon, Fox Chapel, you know, Penn Hills, Moon. Um, well, I guess I know, I know North Hills. Uh, that's less than half of what North Hills has on every shift. So North, the city has fourteen officers, and North Hills has more like twenty-eight. On yeah, on every on every shift. Now, just to be clear. The 14, this story about the 14 officers last night, is that um, a, a, a rare occasion? Is that a one-off thing, or is this? Well, that, John, that was, that was the first day of the new scheduling uh-huh. Im- implementation. So the first day, we only had 14 people. And what day was that, Sunday? Sunday into Monday. Yeah. So, and as far as you know, it's, it's been 14 every night since? I don't, I don't, I don't know that for sure, but we know that, that uh, the fourteen happened on that night, and um, and that summer's coming. That isn't yeah. going to work in the summer too well, is it? No, not at all. I mean, you have all the bars in Pittsburgh that empty out at two two thirty, mm-hmm. and you're going to end up with. Uh, I mean, the the most they, the, the most are scheduling for is twenty seven. You know, twenty seven police. That's it. That's it. For that time period. Um, and I got to ask you, too, before I go, I got about a minute and a half here. Um, what about the homeless situation? I think when we first started talking to you back in July last year, it was that was more of a homeless thing than a crime thing, at least at that, on that occasion when we talked to you. Uh, what's happened with the homeless? Oh, they're, they're still here. They're, you know, they have, uh, I think it's $10 million for homeless in the county budget. You could buy, I think we have 200 homeless people in, in Allegheny County or in Pittsburgh. You could buy each of them a home for that $10 million instead of having them on the streets. Uh-huh. I, don't know what I don't know what they're doing with the $10 million. But are they still camped out? Oh, yeah. Along the river in Southside, uh, you, you see them downtown on the, uh, on the streets downtown, underneath the uh, P.J. McArdle Railway. I mean, they're everywhere. Pooping on the street? Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> needles, yeah. needles. The whole they give you the whole routine. Yeah. Well, last year we had the, um, you know, the the, the, the kids in Southside have a garden uh, at Ormsby Park, and they were going down there at ten o'clock, and at nine the girl calls me up and says, "Hey, there's needles in 
in the garden and we had to, you know, we had to call the police to come down and, and public works to get the needles out. Otherwise the kid could have got it, you know, infected from the, the, the dirty needles left behind by the homeless. Unbelievable. Well, I'm out of time, Rich, but uh, keep me posted on this. And I don't know what they're going to do to fix it, but the only thing you can do is keep making noise about it, I guess. Yeah, we've been doing that for three years and still ain't working. Well, good luck with it. Keep me posted. We'll get you on again. And uh, I hope that somebody comes to your aid out there. Thanks. Thanks, John. Okay, that's Rich Chupka, and uh, that's Chupka, too, on the, on the south side. And what is going on over there? I'll be right back. Well, just a quick reference to our last segment there. Uh, for if you live happen to live um, in the city, especially if you happen to live on the south side, uh, if you're looking for me, I'll be Don Washington Connie. That's where you'll find me. <laughs> it ain't going to be in the city, baby. But uh, I'm a little, I'm about a little uh, little sports here to finish. It's not really sports, but it's a sports related story I like to do. The uh, NFLPA, that's the National Football League Players Association, came out with a report card, and these these are report cards with grades given to them by the players. And it wasn't a good um, good semester <laughs> for the Steelers. Um, this is this is where they were where they were ranked in the various uh, categories. Treatment of families, F minus, twenty ninth out of thirty two. Food in the cafeteria, B minus. Nutritionist, dietitian, D, that's 30th. Locker room, F, that's 30th. Training room, D plus, that's 29th. Training staff, C, that'll make the trainers and the training staff feel pretty good, huh? Getting a C. Uh, Weight room gets a C, 24th. Strength coaches, B plus, they'll be happy with that. Team travel gets a D. Head coach gets an A. He gets an A. Haven't made the play, haven't won a playoff game since, uh, I don't know, what is it, 2016 or whatever? It's a long time. Um, uh, ownership gets an F. I, I don't know if that's Art Rooney II, but that's a bad uh, semester for Art if he ch- checks in with an F there. A couple of things here. Um, I've been in the cafeteria. I haven't been there a long time, but I always liked the food. They gave us free food when we were over there covering the uh, coach's press conference and all that stuff. Never heard anybody complain about the food. Uh, especially, well, I mean, come on, it was the media, it was free, so nobody's going to complain. Um, the, uh, the team travel, now I traveled, um, with the team for many years on a charter jet. We, uh, didn't have to go through the airport. When we, when the plane landed, we were met by buses that were given a police escort to the hotel, which I never understood. It was unnecessary, but that's what we got. Nobody was complaining about that. And um, and then, real quick, the practice facility, they don't mention it here, but there was a time when the Steelers used to practice in what was a, basically an empty lot across the street from Three River Stadium. It only had one goal post, and they practiced there uh, any time that the baseball stadium was being used by the Pirates, by, you know, Three Rivers. So that was a lot. And... Um, that was in the 70s, and they won four Super Bowls. And the locker room was hideous, and I don't even remember them having a cafeteria. So I, I'm i going to spend some time tonight trying to work up some concern for how the Steelers feel about their cafeteria over there. I'll keep you posted on how that's coming along. I'll talk to you tomorrow.